Welcome to Antioch. We are a multi-generational, justice-minded church in beautiful Bend, Oregon, seeking and celebrating the reconciliation of all things. May the Word of God turn your heart toward Christ and the world He loves. As we move from gathering to listening, our scripture reading today is from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1-13. through 13. Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. So then about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if we eat if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. This is the word of God. Thank you, Steve. Morning, church. Good to see you all today. My name's Pete, I'm one of the pastors here, and... Uh, we're really glad that you're with us. We are, during this season of Epiphany, going through various passages in the book of 1 Corinthians, which is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to one of the very first Christian churches located in the Greek city of Corinth. And throughout this letter, Paul is trying to help these new believers figure out what it looks like to follow Jesus faithfully while living in a world that's hostile and unwelcoming to the way of Jesus. And we know that's hard to do anywhere, but that's particularly hard to do in a city like Corinth, which was essentially like a Las Vegas of its day. Kind of a thriving and happening place where all sorts of sketchy stuff went down, right? And unfortunately, what happened in Corinth didn't stay in Corinth. Some of it... <laughs> Some of it ha was also happening in the church. So, for example, we know that people were coming to church and taking communion and then drinking enough communion wine to get drunk, 
right? We know that there were lawsuits happening within the congregation, believers suing each other, taking each other to court. We know that there were uh, inappropriate sexual relationships within the congregation, including one guy and his stepmom, okay? So the church in Corinth is a pretty big mess. There's a reason it's been called uh, keeping up with the Corinthians. So in this letter, Paul is addressing some of these specific issues that the Corinthian people are, are struggling with and trying to help them figure out what does it look like to follow Jesus in loving God and loving others while living in Sin City. And he's going, that may be how you used to live, but that's not who you are anymore. Now that you've met Jesus, you are a new creation. You have a new identity. There's a whole new way to be human. And among the issues that they're dealing with is this question of whether or not Christians should eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols. And this is really timely for us because I know this is a pressing question for so many of you this morning and a hot topic. Uh, culturally that we wrestle with all the time. And um, I know some of you, like every time you go out to eat, you're like, hmm, the brisket looks good, but has this been sacrificed to any pagan gods or anything? <laughs> like, obviously, we don't come across meat that's been sacrificed to idols very often in this town. I'm not even sure where you could find that sort of thing. Um, <laughs> but for the Corinthian Christians, this was a really big deal. Um, and the reason is, in ancient Greece, there were temples dedicated to various gods uh, in every town, and particularly in a place like Corinth, these temples would have been massive and they would have been pervasive. They were everywhere, on every corner, including temples like the one to Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love, where thousands of priestesses were kept and used as temple prostitutes. And most of these temples had a place where you, as a worshiper of the deity in that temple, would bring a live animal and offer it as a sacrifice to Zeus or Apollos or Hermes or whoever. So you'd walk into the temple with your sheep or your goat, you'd bring it to the priest, then the priest would kill it and clean out the carcass and lay the body on the altar where they would set it on fire, and then the smell of the smoke from the burning meat would fill the temple and the gods would be satisfied. And this was completely normal in first century Greece. Whatever god you wanted to worship, you would go to their temple, you would find the priest, and you would make your sacrifice. Everybody did this. Everybody except for the Christians. This sounds kind of crazy to us, but did you know that one of the very first accusations made against Christian Christians is that they were atheists? And the reason was because Christianity was the only religion in that time that had no temple, no priests, and no sacrifices. And the world didn't have any category for that sort of thing, so they said they must be atheists. Now, what's interesting is the truth is Christians did have a temple and a priest and a sacrifice, and we still do today. And his name is Jesus. 
Jesus is our ultimate temple, the place where heaven and earth overlap. And Jesus is our ultimate priest who mediates peace between God and humanity. And Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice who gave his life for the sins of the world. That's the God we worship, and it's the same God that these early Corinthian Christians worshiped as well. And so they had no reason to go to the pagan temples anymore and offer animal sacrifices, but here's the problem. When the pagan priests butchered these animals, they would only offer a small portion of that meat as a sacrifice, and the rest of it would be cooked and either served to worshipers in the temple or the meat would be uh, sold at the market and all the profits would go to the temple. And so this means that these temples essentially became hubs for all social activity. If you got invited to a wedding, it was likely going to be held at a pagan temple, and the meal that was going to be served would likely be food that had been sacrificed to idols. And if you went out to the market and were grocery shopping for dinner that night, the meat that was for sale was most likely sacrificed to idols. And so for these Christians, they had questions about how they ought to live in that time and place. They would say, so when we go to the butcher shop or when we go to a party, should we ask whether or not this meat had been sacrificed? And if we find out that it has, then should we eat it? And this may not sound like a really big deal to most of us, but we have to understand that for most of them, they had grown up going to worship in these temples. They had spent their lives around these pagan idols eating sacrificial meat. And when they received the gospel and when they came to faith in Jesus, part of what that meant was turning from all these idols and worship of false gods and pledging their allegiance to Christ alone. And so for them, pagan worship represented their old self, their old way of life, that Jesus had saved them from. And so as a result, this pretty intense debate has broken out within the Corinthian church. And you have people on both sides. Some are saying, Jesus is Lord, we have no gods besides him. So Christians should have nothing to do with food that's been sacrificed to idols. It's dishonoring to God, we're giving our money to these corrupt systems of prostitution and sex slavery, and it compromises our witness as followers of Jesus. Like, shouldn't we live differently than the world around us? So half the church or so saw it that way. And then the other side is saying, yeah, I get it, but it's just meat, right? And just because you're eating meat that was sacrificed to a God doesn't mean you're worshiping that God. And they say, even the, the truth is that none of these gods are even real, right? They're literally made up. There's nothing different about meat that's been sacrificed and meat that hasn't. Some guy prayed a prayer to an imaginary God when he killed it, right? So what are we supposed to do? Stop going to restaurants? Stop going to the market? How are we going to share the gospel with anybody? So you have these two sides. And you can see that this isn't just some like obscure, irrelevant theological debate for these folks. This is their daily life. 
And they're desperately trying to figure out how to faithfully follow Jesus and share life together as a church when half of them can't imagine ever eating sacrificial meat again and the other half has no problem with it. And this would come up every day, every meal even. So how do you live in community with that kind of division when you have people on both sides? How do you have dinner with your small group? How do you invite another family from church over? How do you do church potlucks? All that kind of stuff. And eventually then this debate gets so heated that the Corinthians decide to write a letter to Paul and in that letter they include this question. What should we do? And so when we come to 1 Corinthians 8, what we have is Paul's reply to that question. Should Christians eat meat sacrificed to idols? And what we get Paul's response in this chapter. Now we can assume they were probably hoping Paul would say either yes or no and kind of clarify things, but of course that's not what Paul does. Instead, he says, okay, good question. Let's think about this together. First, let's ask this. As followers of Jesus, what do we know to be true? Okay, so in discerning what it looks like to live faithfully in a world that lives differently and believes differently than we do as followers of Jesus, first question Paul poses is, what do we know to be true? In verse 4, he says, So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there's no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God." the Father from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. So again, first question Paul kind of asks here is, what do we know to be true? And his answer is that we know there is only one God, the God and Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who created all things and has given us life. Therefore, he says, all these other quote-unquote gods in the temple, they're nothing. They're not real. They're just made up. And these idols, these little statues that they're offering sacrifices to, they're just, they're just pieces of wood or stone that some guy carved. So Paul starts by validating the argument of those who think eating sacrificed meat is no big deal. And they've got to be stoked, right? They're like, yes. That's what we've been saying. All these gods aren't even real. Like you can take a hamburger and offer it to a garden gnome and nothing's gonna happen, right? <laughs> it's just a statue. So Paul seems to agree. It's like, yeah. But interesting, he doesn't say, so go ahead and eat whatever you want then. See, in verse six, he says, yeah, you guys are right. There's only one God and idols are man-made. But then verse 7 starts with, but. He says, you're right, that is true, but there's another question to ask. Verse 7, but not everyone possesses this knowledge. 
Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food, that does, not, but food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat it and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. So after Paul asks, what do we know to be true? He asks a second question. How are we called to love? He says, yeah, technically, theologically, you're right. There is nothing wrong with eating meat sacrificed to idols. But that doesn't mean you should do it. There's something more important for you to consider. There's something more important than being right. And that is being loving. So Paul tells those who have no problem eating sacrificial meat that they need to think about how their decision is going to affect others in the community. And he tells them, don't let your personal freedom become a stumbling block to the weak. These younger Christians that have been saved by Jesus out of a life of idolatry and pagan sacrifice, they now come to church and everyone's eating food from the pagan temple. That's going to be hard for them. So here's what Paul is calling out in the Corinthians. He's calling them out for caring more about being right than being loving. They're sacrificing relational unity for the sake of individual liberty. Which is exactly how he starts this section of the letter. By showing how in situations like this, sometimes knowledge and love can be at odds with each other. Back in verse 1, he says, Now food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. And those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. By the way, if you're a parent of teenagers, this verse sounds <laughs> kind of familiar, doesn't it? <laughs> Paul tells these, more, these older, more mature Christians, Quit arguing about who's right and start thinking about how you can build each other up. And at the end of the chapter, Paul doesn't come out and tell them, here's what you should do. But he, was, he does tell them then what he would do if he were in their situation. Verse 13, he says, Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. So Paul says that not only would he be willing to go a meal without eating meat sacrificed to idols, but if it would keep his brother or sister from falling into sin, then he would never eat meat again for the rest of his life. Here's how I would summarize what this passage teaches us. Following Jesus means limiting our comforts and freedoms for the sake of the community and living in such a way that others might be strengthened by our lives. I'll say it again. Following Jesus means limiting our comforts and freedoms for the sake of the community 
and living in such a way that others might be strengthened by our lives. All right, so we've been talking this whole time about meat sacrificed to idols. But can you see how we might be talking about more than that? Because unless today you were planning on going home, turning on the football game, throwing some goat meat sacrificed to Zeus on the grill, then maybe we need to think about a different way that this would apply to our lives in the world that we live in. Of course, for us, the question isn't usually sacrificial meat, but I think we have plenty of opportunities to limit our own freedoms and comforts for the sake of building up our brothers and sisters in Christ. So we could try to think about it in the context of the big hot topics and the cultural conversations, but I actually think it's more important that we start down on the ground with real people in our lives, people in this congregation that we have relationships with, that we're learning how to share life together with. So who are your friends, your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who have places in their lives where they're struggling? And what would it look like for you to limit your own comfort and freedom in order to build them up? What would you be willing to give up that others might be built up? I think we could apply this to any number of areas of life, but I think the most obvious one, I'm guessing the one that comes to your mind first, is alcohol. Is that what you were thinking? Let's say that you've got a friend who's struggling with drinking and is actively trying to quit. And let's just make this really real. Let's say you're throwing a Super Bowl party in two weeks and you're inviting a bunch of friends over and you know that this friend who's been trying to quit hasn't had a drink in a month now. And so you're thinking, I'd like to invite them, but I don't want to put them in a situation where they're going to be tempted to drink. So here's the question. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Well, I'd say you have a few different options. You could say, well, if there's going to be alcohol there, I'm just not going to invite them. Maybe that's the loving thing to do. Or you could invite them, but let them know, hey, there's going to be alcohol there. So if you uh, don't want to come, that's no problem. Or if they are going to come, then you could make sure that you have a bunch of good non-alcoholic options as well. Or maybe you would want to invite some other folks that don't drink so they're not the only one. Or maybe you could say, hey, other people are going to be drinking, but I know you're not, so I'm not going to drink today either, and we're going to hang out. Or, I know this is hard to imagine, you could throw a party without alcohol. <laughs> now, what's, which of those is the right thing to do? I, I don't know. I don't know. Any of those might be the right call. What's the main point? The point is that you care. That you care about your friend that you think about how your life and your decisions are gonna impact your brother or sister 
in Christ who's struggling. In this entire chapter, did you notice that Paul only gives one command? And it's in verse 9. He says, Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. This is the only command. Be careful. And not careful in the sense of cautious, full of care. Care. Pay attention. Think about others. Consider what they're going through and how your actions might affect them. Be careful. This is the main point. Consider your brothers and sisters in Christ. You're in this together, and sometimes loving other people well is going to require you to limit your freedoms and pleasures. So for us as a church, one of the like really basic fundamental ways that we've tried to apply this is in communion. I assume that most of you, if you had your choice, would prefer a nice Pinot Noir <laughs> and a robust, glutinous loaf of bread. <laughs> For the sake of the community, we serve non-alcoholic wine and gluten-free bread. Now, a few years ago, when we were first navigating this, we tried to have different options. You had your wine, and you had your juice, and then you had your real bread, and then your gluten-free bread, but then the gluten-free people also need their choice of wine and juice, so they had their own, and it just got a little bit ridiculous, right? And so we thought, all right, let's just... Uh, Let's just scrap the whole thing and let's strip it down to the bare essentials of what the most people can have. So even though most of you would probably prefer the real stuff, whether you know it or not, your willingness to limit your freedom and comfort is an act of love. In our home, my two daughters both have celiac disease. They get to come and receive communion every week without worrying about being glutened. And as most of you know, I think you know, I happen to be one of those Christians for whom alcohol became a major stumbling block. I used to drink quite a bit. I was very good at it. <laughs> and for a long time, it was no problem. But then at some point, Five or six years ago, it became pretty apparent that alcohol had become something else for me. My doctor diagnosed me with a severe alcohol use disorder and told me that if I wanted to live to walk my daughters down the aisle, that I better stop drinking. So about five years ago, with the support of our elder board, I was able to get some help, deal with some of the underlying issues beneath my addiction. As of today, it's been 1,668 days since I've had a drink. <clears throat> and I haven't relapsed yet, um, at least not yet. I, there have been three times that I've accidentally taken a sip of alcohol. Two of them were at parties when I just accidentally grabbed the wrong drink. One of them was when I was on sabbatical last summer 
and I was out of town and visited another church on Sunday. And I went forward to receive communion, and it didn't even cross my mind. I took the little cup and drank a shot of the worst wine I've ever had <laughs> in my life. And I should have thought of it, but they should have thought of me. It really shook me up. And so the point is that whether you know it or not, every Sunday, when you come down, even if you would prefer real wine and bread, when you take this gluten-free and grape juice, you are loving me well as your weaker brother. And it means a lot to me. And I'm not the only one. So alcohol is one of the places we may need to limit our freedom and pleasure for the sake of our sisters and brothers who struggle with drinking. I don't know exactly what that looks like. It looks like caring and going from there. There's plenty of other places too, though. Some of us struggle with alcohol, but in this room today, there's people who struggle with all kinds of other stuff too. Some of us are struggling with food, eating too much or eating too little. Some of us are struggling with sexual sin, lust, temptation, infidelity. Some of us are struggling with anger or bitterness. For some, it's your doubts about your faith or your disappointment with God. Some of you are struggling with your past, the things you've done or the things that have been done to you. Some of you are struggling with pride, arrogance, self-righteousness, judging others. Some of you, your marriage or your family is falling apart. Some of you are lonely and feel like your community has abandoned or rejected you. Some of you are struggling with your physical or mental health and you're suffering in silence or whatever it is in one way or another, all of us, every single one of us has places in our lives where we are the weaker sister or brother. One of our core discipleship practices as a church is community, which means learning to share life deeply as the family of God. And we define Christian community as moving from convenience to commitment, meaning we don't just show up for each other when we have nothing else going on, but we prioritize our relationships with each other and we figure out how to stay connected even when life is full. So again, the main point is that following Jesus means limiting our comforts and freedoms for the sake of the community and living in such a way that others might be strengthened by our lives. Now, in order for us to become this kind of community, there's one last thing that we need to talk about. 
And that is that as much as it's going to be hard for us to limit our freedoms and pleasures for each other's sake, I actually don't think that's going to be the hardest part. I actually think the hardest part is going to be letting other people in on our struggles and weaknesses in the first place and then being willing to let them accommodate us. Serving others is hard. Letting others serve you is even harder. Years ago, when our church was hosting a marriage retreat, there was a young couple who came to me and said they couldn't go because they couldn't afford the cost of the trip. But then an older couple in the church found out and offered to pay the way of the younger couple. And when I went to the younger couple and told them, they said, that's really nice, but we just can't accept that. And I said, why not? And the guy said, well, we just have a really hard time accepting a free gift. And I said, you're going to have a really hard time being a Christian. <laughs> because that's what this gospel is all about, right? It's by grace we've been saved through faith. It's not from ourselves. It is a gift of God. So I wonder how the Holy Spirit might lead you to live this out in your life this week. Maybe you have a friend, a brother or sister in Christ who's struggling in life or faith, and there's a way you can show up for them and love them by laying down your rights. Or maybe you're the one struggling, and you need to let the people around you in on it and let them know so they can take care of you. And if that's hard for you, then you might need to remember what Paul says about those who are struggling in verse 11. This weaker, weak brother or sister for whom Christ died. That's you. Even in your sins and struggles, Christ died for you. So Antioch, this week, may you humble yourselves and receive the grace of Jesus, our ultimate brother who gave up all his comforts and freedoms to give you life. You're worth it to him. Amen.